Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that is a repeated founder. So uh, we're going to be really learning here about the full cycle, about building, scaling, financing, and exiting. And obviously now, you know, he has a company that is uh, a rocket ship. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Avery Pinaron. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Ontario. There in Canada. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life growing up? Well, I was born in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is, is pretty far north. Um, and it's about a four-hour drive from anywhere uh, even significantly sized. So it was quiet. I had a, had a quiet uh, upbringing in the outskirts of this, this city. So there was lots of nature and stuff like that. And I, I do like nature, but I've, I've learned since leaving there that I also like big cities. So I like to go back and forth. So with all the nature and everything, how do you get into computers? Well, that's that's the thing with all those nature and everything, there was not that much to do. Uh, so we had a computer uh, and I, I got pretty into that as soon as what my dad bought, brought home a modem when I was maybe 10 years old. Uh, I got really interested in this ability to like meet people and communicate with people that I otherwise would never be able to meet because it was you know a 10 minute walk down the street just to find anybody. So yeah, it's, online is, was, was a pretty big change for me. Now, you know, in your case, you went on and, and you studied engineering. And uh, right at the time where you were in school, I mean, you decided, you know, there was a cool project that you wanted to do with, with, with a fellow co-founder there. You know, you thought it was just going to be a project, but it ended up taking a life of its own. So, so walk us through that journey. Sure. Well, I, I went to the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario. One thing a lot of people don't know about the University of Waterloo is that they have this uh, co-op program where unlike a regular internship at Waterloo you do four months of school and then four months of work and four months of school and four months of work so by the time you graduated you usually had about six different jobs uh, so that you have a much better idea of what you want to do when you grow up uh, and so one of the things me and my roommate decided to do is for one of those four-month terms we thought okay well maybe we want to be an entrepreneur when we grow up so why don't we try starting a company and it'll be fine because we'll probably screw up a whole bunch of stuff but we'll just do it for four months uh, and see how it goes. And so what we did sort of leading up to that four months is we we built a product which happened to be a, a network appliance server that you could use to share your internet connection. This was in the early 2000s, late 1990s. Um, so the people were still using modems and stuff. And I'd observed that a bunch of companies would have maybe one computer in a corner with a modem and people would line up uh, everyone in the office one by one to try get online and check their email. And we knew this 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 Linux thing was available now and you could use that to share a modem across everybody in the in the office so they wouldn't have to line up they could just check their email from their computer so we built a little product to make that easier uh, and by the time our four month period started the product was ready and it was time to start selling it so we sold it to a few people we were pretty proud of ourselves because we could build this box for a thousand dollars in parts and sell it for two thousand dollars and then we were going to try to just shut down the company at the end of the four months but what we learned is that people liked this product so much that they kept phoning us and, and wanting, you know, recommending it to their friends who would then phone us and say, hey, I want to buy this device. Uh, and as starving students, when you could buy something for a thousand and sell it for two thousand, it was hard to turn that down. 
So the company sort of got a little bit out of control after that. Um, I, at one point, I got called out of an exam that I was writing because someone had an urgent tech support question. And we realized things were getting uh, out of control. So we brought in a few other people who could do first-line technical support. Next thing you know, uh, there was a dot-com crash. Uh, we were graduating. We decided uh, it was time to expand the company. So we ended up raising some money right after the dot-com crash, which is a little bit scary. Uh, and eventually, you know, to make a super long story short, all this uh, viral growth ended up in, in us uh, uh, selling to IBM in, in 2008. And what was it like to run a company after the crash? What was that like? So I think the most interesting thing about that, obviously, it was hard to raise money. Everybody was super, super conservative about investing in tech companies right after the dot-com crash. Being a Canadian at that time was actually kind of a benefit because Canadians are always a little bit conservative. So the investors in Canada had not invested on the way up in the dot-com thing because they thought it was too crazy, but then they still had money left after the big dot-com crash, uh, unlike a lot of the U.S. investors who, who they really broke the bank. And so we got Canadian investors. The downside is Canadian investors can be a little bit, I don't know what the word is, uh, old school or or uh, hesitant or, you know, the numbers are always smaller and they always they're always pushing you for sort of more old school financial metrics, even when it's not that relevant. This is especially true back then. I think Canadian investors have come a long way in the last 20 years. Uh, but it, it was tough raising money. And it was we raised less money than a comparable company would have raised uh, if the market hadn't been under the same conditions. But the good news is we learned how to be really, really frugal with that money, uh, which is an important lesson because a lot of companies who raised a lot more money than us two years earlier were already bankrupt by the time we were talking about working because they just never learned how to how to operate in a a more constrained environment. And tell us about the process with IBM, because obviously, you know, incredible uh, journey and outcome. First a company, first exit. I mean, that's obviously not the norm. And, and more importantly, being in Canada, where probably the startup ecosystem was almost non-existent. So at what point does IBM, you know, come knocking and, and what was that like? So that was a, that was a really interesting experience. Uh, so this first product, it grew from just a modem sharing product to by that time, we had added a bunch of features. The most important feature that we added was what we called a, a virtual server. So you could run, I guess nowadays, you just call it a container. It was before Docker showed up. But you could take this network appliance that we sold you, insert a CD, and it would because people used CDs back then because the internet was still slow. Uh, so you'd insert the CD and it would install a Linux environment, including an application directly onto this appliance and get it running in, in sort of five minutes instead of having to go through a complicated installation process. And much like containers today, it was sort of revolutionary because you weren't messing around with all the other environment stuff on your computer. You just put in the app and the app would just work no matter what. And it was on this physical appliance. So it was really good for deploying things to small businesses that otherwise would have been hard to deploy to small businesses. Uh, one of the things that up until toward the end of our cycle with that company, we hadn't really figured out was that it's better to focus on something really tight and small uh, and appeal to a particular market really strongly than it is to make just something cool and technical. We sort of got sidetracked by a lot of tech enthusiasts who were really excited about the cool technological capabilities of our product, but it's kind of hard to make a bunch of money selling to tech enthusiasts. When we implemented this virtual server feature, it created this really interesting new business development opportunity where you could work with the vendors of apps who wanted their apps to be easier to install in a small business, but didn't have the technology to do that. So there were a couple of apps that we started working with. One of them was an accounting package 
that that actually went pretty well because now all of a sudden this accounting package no longer required you to set up a Windows machine and the installation process went down from like four days to 10 minutes. Uh, but another package that we started, or another company we were working with was IBM. We made it easy to install Lotus Domino, which is part of Lotus Notes, uh, and also easy to install IBM DB2. And both of these packages are famously incredibly complicated to install. And IBM at that time, it was at that time, maybe 2006 or so, was still kind of bitter about Microsoft uh, stealing DOS from them. And were really worried about Microsoft Outlook and Exchange taking over everything. So they really wanted to try to get uh, Lotus Notes and Domino into smaller businesses. And Tailsky, or sorry, excuse me, our company was the, the pathway to make that possible. So they got really excited about it. At first, we were working together. And then they decided they didn't want competitors to have the same capability. So they ended up buying us just for that one feature. Wow. I mean, and in the double digit million. So, I mean, quite a, an outcome for, for someone of your age. How old were you at that point? At that point, let me let me count for a second. Uh, I was in my late 20s, I guess, at that time. That's incredible. Now, obviously, That's I didn't incredible. make all that money. Our investors took back uh, some of it, but it was it was a reasonably good exit. Yeah, no kidding. Now, if for you, what, ha what happened next after the exit? Uh, after that, I, I went into the uh, banking industry for a little while. I knew someone in the, the banking world, and they were trying to commercialize their internal banking software that they developed for themselves and try to sell it to other banks. Uh, that, and, and he wanted me to help them build a tech company out of that. That was a really interesting experience, but unfortunately, it was cut short by the financial disaster in 2008-2009. Uh, it turned out to be the worst possible time to be trying to sell things to banks. And so we decided not to do that. That's when I uh, ended up moving on to work at Google for a few years. And in Google, you were for seven years or so. Now, you know, that's quite a lot of years. I guess uh, up until then, you know, you, you had done more of your own thing. And, but I guess that working for such a, an amazing, you know, much bigger company like Google, you know, perhaps that gave you the, the perspective and visibility into also how a bigger company operates. So I guess, what did you learn from the experience at Google? But it's funny, I remember my first year at Google, I was, I, uh, because I was so accustomed to doing things on my own, I was pretty sure that it wasn't going to work out. Uh, they made me a good offer. I'm like, okay, I can't turn down the offer. But I didn't spend my signing bonus for the whole first 12 months, because if you quit during the first 12 months, you have to give back a prorated amount of your signing bonus. And I'm like, ah, there's no way I'm going to last 12 months at this place. I better just keep this money in the bank. Uh, and then I ended up working there for seven years, uh, which was as much of a surprise to me as it was to all of my friends and probably people at Google. Uh, but the yeah, the experience was really interesting, just seeing how a big, successful, um, really mega corporation operates. Now, Google is a pretty unique, big, successful mega corporation. So it's not exactly like working at other big companies. Um, but certainly having all the structures in place, it was very interesting. One of my, my first managers there uh, I asked him, like, is it, does it make it harder trying to do, do things when there's basically an infinite amount of money available? Because I'm only used to doing things with a limited amount of money available. Uh, and he, what he said to me was, you've heard about trying to do more with less. You're very familiar with doing more with less. And at Google, what you have to do is set your sights on doing much more with more. Uh, and it's, it's a different optimization goal. Google doesn't need you to do regular amounts of stuff because it won't make a blip in the bottom line. Google needs you to swing for the absolute stratosphere. Um, 
and you can spend a bunch of money doing it because they have a lot of money, but it needs to be big successes. They're not interested in small successes. And that was a really big change in, in my outlook. I hear you. Now, at Google, you did, you did spend quite a bit of time. I mean, the question that comes to mind now is, so you did your first company, you know, right in university. You had a fantastic success, you know, a successful outcome. Why did it take you so long to launch the next company? Because as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, especially if you had a, a positive outcome. So what took you so long? So before I joined Google, I, had, I actually had an idea for my less, next startup already. I was going to make Wi-Fi routers. And this was 2010 or so. Uh, and Wi-Fi routers were, were quite bad at the time. They're still kind of bad. Uh, but I, I had a long list of things that I thought should be better about Wi-Fi routers. And I'd noticed like my first startup, we made Linux-based appliances for network sharing. Uh, it's a lot like, you know, it took $1,000 of components, like a full-size computer to do what by 2010, you could build, you could just buy a Linksys router from the store for $80. And it did pretty much the same stuff. Plus it had Wi-Fi in it. But these routers were not that good. They were missing a bunch of stuff that I figured ought to be in these products. But when I did the market analysis, I'm like, okay, from an engineering point of view, we can build a way better router than any of these other routers that are on the market, and we can do it for a reasonable price. From a marketing point of view, I don't know how to get these things into people's hands, because nowadays, the way people get Wi-Fi routers, and that was true in 2010, and it's even more true now, is that your ISP provides one to you, right? They hook up your internet, and they drop it in your apartment. And ISPs are not buying routers because they're so good or because they solve the customer's problem. They buy routers entirely because you can buy, you can get a whole bunch of them on mass and mass, mass control them, right? And that's not the best way for people to get the best experience. But I couldn't think of a way to go to market and sort of overcome that problem. And I think sort of my, you know, I, I decided not to start the startup because I couldn't figure it out. And I think uh, based on all the, there were a bunch of Wi-Fi router startups uh, starting around 2010 and going to around 2020-ish. Uh, and I think they all ran into that problem and most of them failed for that reason. Uh, so I think that was sort of borne out. So the reason I ended up joining Google was one of my friends gave me a hint that this Google Fiber thing was coming along. And Google Fiber was going to be an ISP, but they were going to be a different kind of ISP that cared about user experience a lot more. And so what I ended up doing at Google was working on Wi-Fi routers as part of an ISP where we could actually focus specifically on making sure people had a really good experience and making sure that the customer support costs were really low. But the channel to getting to market was somebody else's problem, which was the ISP. So I, I got pulled in because it was the project I wanted to do anyway. And we were doing pretty well uh, up until sort of, and this is one of the problems with, with Google, they sort of lost interest all of a sudden uh, in Google Fiber. And then my project sort of got stopped. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on 
when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Okay, so then at what point does, uh, you know, tail scale, the idea, you know, really come knocking and, and why did you think it was a good idea to give your notice and, and go after it? Uh, so I gave my notice, I guess, when they, they paused Google Fiber development. Uh, I didn't actually know what I was going to do next at that time. So I, I took, uh, I guess it turned out to be about six months off, just, just relaxing and playing video games, trying to decide what I wanted to do next. Uh, and one of the things I was sort of angry about at the time was like, well, look, Google, they've got this short attention span and it ties back to this, like trying to do much more with more. And it turns out like doing much more with more is not really what I'm good at. I'm actually better at doing more with less. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of people out there who need to do more with less. And Google, like being inside Google, you lose touch with that kind of people. Uh, and so tail scale is a bit of a joke. It's the, the opposite of internet scale. They're, the vast majority of problems faced by the vast majority of developers in the world are nothing like Google's problems, right? They're much more like, look, I've got one computer. My entire database can fit on this computer. It'll scale to 10,000 or 100,000 users, no problem on this one computer. But I really need to take care of this one computer. And I need to get rid of all this overhead created by the computer so I can actually solve the problem. Uh, and so tail scale is sort of the motivation is a little bit of a, uh, a reaction to the fact that the whole world by then had been copying Google's techniques to scale things up to extremely high scale, when not every problem needs to be scaled that much. And so tail scale is all about like, let's solve, like make the easy problems easy because other people are making the hard problems possible. So then how do you guys make money at tail scale? What's the business model? That's a good question. It's it's a little complicated to answer. It, it's uh, it's a combination of two or three different business models that works really well together. Uh, there's a really great talk from uh, Alan Gross, who, who titles his talk um, uh, GTM 3.0. But the the general concept is this sort of hybrid model. So individuals, developers usually at home adopt TailScale to play with it because they've got Raspberry Pis or uh, home automation systems or 3D printers or whatever. They just want to connect their devices to each other. But they get really excited about it. Then they tell their friends and then you know their, their friends use it and they get excited. So you have this huge word of mouth growth, but all of this is on the free plan. Individuals, we don't try to extract money from individuals. But some of these developers will then bring it to work and get value from the same kind of connectivity tool, but at work. And then they will tell their friends at work. And eventually, you know, the, the value they're getting is from a commercial point of view is very different than the kind of value they get as individuals at home. And the value is definitely worth paying for. So at work, they'll pay the, pay the monthly fee. And then interestingly, some fraction of those people get so excited about using TailScale on their development team at work that they go to the IT team and say, look, on the development side, we've got this amazing connectivity tool called TailScale that's solving all our problems. For the rest of the company, we have this terrible VPN that's 20 plus years old that everybody hates. 
you should ditch the terrible VPN and you should put Tailscale across the whole company instead. And then I won't have to use two tools and everybody else will benefit from this wonderful tool that we found. Uh, and it's really an interesting business model because it flips from the, being the sort of bottom-up product-led growth adoption of individuals one by one to now you're talking to the CIO or the VP of engineering or the CTO and saying like, okay, we're going to roll something out across the whole company. Uh, it's a top-down sale. They want to buy a, bunch of, a whole bunch of licenses at once and roll out a whole bunch at once. So if you look at the adoption curve, it sort of stop, starts off like a few people, a few people, a few people, and then jump. Uh, suddenly now you've added a thousand seats or something like that. And that's where most of the real money is. And the, the VPN market is tens of billions of dollars a year. And most VPNs that everybody is using nowadays are terrible. Very cool. Now, how did you go about putting the band together for the company? So we started off with three co-founders. Uh, there was me, there was a person I met at Google uh, doing, uh, interestingly, because we both had been working on high-scale logs processing, me for the uh, Google Fiber service and him for a different service internally. Uh, we kind of hit it off from a technical point of view. And then another one of my friends who actually worked with me, uh, who was one, part one of my classmates at the University of Waterloo and also ended up working with me at my first startup. He had just gotten out of a, another startup that he was working on at the time and was available. And he said, like, hey, it would be great to work with you again. If you have any good ideas? And I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, I do have a good idea. So yeah, the band came together there. And just like from all of the contacts that the three of us had made in the preceding you know, 20 years of our careers, um, it was relatively easy to fill the team with some amazing people that we sort of met along the way, because a lot of people, this, this idea of like, why don't we just do things the easy way? Why don't we make a product that makes it possible for everybody to do things the easy way really resonated with a certain group of, especially engineers. Nice. Now, in terms of the financing, I mean, you guys have raised quite a bit of money for this business. How much capital have you guys raised for Tailscale? Uh, total capital raised is 115 million USD. Now, in your case, you raised quite a bit, more than what you needed, uh, because you saw that there was going to be some financial turmoil. So how did you think this through? What was the thought process and, and how did you go about that? Sure. Well, we raised three rounds so far. First one was 3 million in our seed round. Then we raised... 12 million Series A, and then we raised $100 million Series B uh, about a year and a half after that. The company's only been around about three years. Uh, so the market is, is clearly, or up until very recently, was much more exuberant than it was in 2001 when I started my first company. So the first 3 million, I think, was, you know, we raised it because we wanted to hire some people that wanted to work with us but couldn't do it for free. We could have lasted pretty long on that $3 million, but when the Series the Series A basically came together on its own because several investors saw how things were going just with our initial launch uh, and wanted to get in. And I, I remember uh, at one point, because I, I was refusing meetings with investors, because like, guys, we have $3 million. I don't need more money. Uh, but someone came to one of our existing investors and said, like, Avery, uh, or said, can you pass along a message to Avery? Uh, name your terms, name your price. We want in. Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, anybody that desperate, I shouldn't talk to them because I don't want to work with investors who are that desperate. So like, close that <laughs> one down. But then within a couple of weeks, there were three other investors who came in and said, like, can you tell Avery the same thing? I, I want in also. And our investors were like, okay, Avery, this is what you call a global maximum. You're never going to get a better deal than this. You should just do the Series A right now if you're ever planning to do a Series A. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess sooner or later we're going to do a Series A. Uh, so we raised the Series A. But one of the bits of advice we got, and this was in 2020. One of the bits of advice we got is like, don't push your valuation too hard. You can, hard. You can start a bidding war right now. They all said, name your price. 
presumably there's an actual limit to that. You can't actually name your price to any number you want, but they'll go pretty high. They'll probably go higher than they should. Uh, but be careful because if you set the valuation too high, it's going to be hard to raise a Series B. Uh, yeah. So I took that advice to heart and we set a cap for how high we were going to let the valuation go at the Series A. And then we instantly hit that cap. Everybody's like, okay, well, that cap's super reasonable. I'll buy in at that. Uh, and then we had to select our investors based on different criteria. And it was actually pretty difficult because the investors who had gotten through this gate so far were all really good. So there was a, a little bit of a, um, you know, they call this a success problem. But we ha actually struggled quite a bit to choose which investor we wanted to lead our Series A. We did that. And then, you know, as time went on, then the motivation for raising our Series B was quite different. We still hadn't spent most of the money from our seed or Series A. I remember thinking as we were raising the Series B that we had finally just finished spending our initial $3 million from the seed and had barely begun digging into the $12 million from our Series A. But we started getting advice from our investors and our network of advisors like, hey, the market has been really great, but it's too great. This can't go on forever. And your numbers are looking super good right now. Are you confident that your numbers are going to keep looking that super great a year from now? Or should you take advantage of the good economy and your good statistics? Uh, and they strongly recommended we do the latter. Uh, and, and things were looking kind of shaky. And so on the Series B, we actually intentionally took the opposite strategy. We're like, okay, things are great right now. There's no way the economy is going to keep going like this forever. And it turned out that was a much more accurate prediction than I would normally be able to make. So we got super lucky on the timing. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Amazing timing. With that one, we intentionally said, okay, we're not going to cap the valuation. We're just going to go to raise a bunch of money. And I sort of got taught, we were originally thinking of raising $30 million because that would have been plenty. But our investors are like, well, what if something happens? Your $30 million might, you know, if you aim for a 24-month runway, we might be still at the bottom of the market by the time that 24 months runs out. So they're like, okay, well, why don't we raise like $70 million? It's like, that'll, that'll be, a, you know, that'll last us for sure through the two years if, this, if there's a downturn. Uh, but then, you know, I was talking to some other people and it's like, well, okay, everybody's going to be raising 70 million. I bet you'll get a bunch of press if you raise 100 million because <laughs> it's the magic three digits, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, in some sense, this is a dumb thing to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm Canadian, so we're especially conservative. It's like, there's no way I need 100 million dollars. But I think there, there's something to be said for just making a bunch of people angry at how much money you can raise for this, this you know, at the time, two and a half year old company. And I think that will get people's attention in the right way. So, you know, we, we started talking about raising $100 million. And, and again, as with the Series A, there were a bunch of people interested. Uh, and of course, it was there was some various, you know, disagreements about what the maximum valuation should be and stuff. But we ended up taking uh, not not basing entirely on the valuation, but choosing the best possible partners with a good valuation. I think we did pretty great, but it was intentionally so we can last out whatever kind of weird economic downturns happen. So we're we're intentionally not running out to spend this money as fast as we possibly can. Uh, the goal for me was like let's let's make sure this company is not going to die no matter what. And in the meantime, if other people are getting tight on money because the economy starts going badly, that's better for us. We'll be able to spend our way through the downturn instead of uh, cutting our way through the downturn. That's amazing. Now, for the people that are listening, to get an idea of the scope and size of Tailscale today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you're comfortable with? Uh, right now, we are around 40 employees. That's incredible. 
Wow, what a what an output eh, for 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 the size. That's incredible. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, Avery, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Tailscale is fully realized. What does that world look like? So, uh, when we write down our vision statement, the the super short version is 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 the new internet. So, uh, the risk of getting a little bit technical. I remember back in 1994, you could buy a Windows computer, and it did not have TCP/IP on it. Right, like the internet was a thing that not everybody had, and I remember you had to like add on this tool called Trumpet Windsock uh, to to add internet support to your Windows machine, and then Windows ninety five came along and added TCP/IP to it. Just fast forward to now, twenty five plus years later, even if you buy a watch and it doesn't have TCP/IP on it, you're like, what's wrong with this watch? It doesn't do anything. It's broken, right? The internet is everywhere. Every single electronic device now has got internet stuff in it. Um, and that's how, you know, in that time span, we went from like, you can, you don't really care about the internet that much. It's a new, interesting thing to it's everywhere. But the internet itself has a bunch of problems uh, with it that have sort of evolved over time. We can talk about that if, if you want. Like the, you know, the cloud is partly a symptom of the fact that you can't even connect to your own devices anymore, right? Like I could have a server at home that can do everything I need, but if I'm not at home, I can't use it. Right? It's this weird problem. If I instead take the same stuff and rent time in the cloud, then I can access it when I'm not at home. There's a bunch of security problems, but at least I can access it when I'm not at home. So I think the future is a little bit, you can sort of picture it as a pendulum. Back in the 1960s, there were IBM mainframes. Uh, Microsoft came along and pulled things toward the PC. And now everybody's got their own computers. Uh, but now we're in the, in the world of like mobile devices in the cloud. We've all got our own computers. Our mobile devices are more powerful than the PCs we had 10 years ago. But our mobile devices are useless without the cloud. If you took away the cloud, these super fancy supercomputers could do nothing, right? I think things are going to shift a little bit back the other way. I think these computers that we hold in our pockets can do things without needing the cloud, without having to pay rent to the Google, Amazon, Microsoft of the world. Uh, and I think Tailscale can make that possible. I think Tailscale could be the next thing that like 30 years from now, uh, it would be weird not to have it on your computer because like the internet's broken if you don't have it. That's amazing. Now, we're talking here about the future. So let's talk about the present and let's talk about the past. Let's see if I was to put you into a time machine and I was able to bring you back, to bring you back to perhaps Waterloo when you were you know, studying engineering. And let's say you had the opportunity of speaking with that younger self and giving that one younger self a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, after you know, having run two companies? All right, I guess I, I give myself probably two interlocking bits of advice that would have completely changed my career trajectory for the better. One of them is uh, whatever it is you're trying to do when you start a company, somebody has done this before. There's somebody out there who knows how to do this better than you can build it from first principles. If you can find that person, and ask them for advice, even if it's for just one hour, uh, it, can, it can completely stop you from making horrific mistakes that are going to set you back by years. Uh, and one of the things we've been doing with Tailscale that I didn't do in my first company is we have an extensive network of advisors that I ask for advice on all kinds of things. And most of the time, the advice is like relatively obvious and nothing special. But every now and then, once every month or two, I get this like brilliant nugget of advice that I would never have guessed that 
avoids a huge problem that I was about to create for myself. Like the difference between success and failure can be like one little bit of advice that you get from somebody. So you need to go out and look for that advice, no matter how smart you are, you think you are. And I thought I was pretty smart back then. Uh, the next bit of advice is actually a very specific instance of that. This book called Crossing the Chasm, uh, which I really love because it was basically the story of my first company. And it was given to me by one of the investors in my first company who said like, Avery, I've been thinking about your company a lot. I just read this book. This describes everything you've done wrong strategically. If you had not made the mistakes that this book lays out, your company would be 10 times or 100 times more successful. And I read the book and I'm like, crap. It's absolutely true. Everything in this book, I mean, every chapter is a lot of people think you should do this, but if you do this, then this will happen and you should do this instead. Every single chapter, oh, I did think I should do that. I did do that. And that is what happened. And crap, that is what I should do instead. And when we, by the time we sold to IBM, I had been putting the advice in that book into practice for a couple of years and it completely changed the trajectory of my company right? The reason we could exit IBM, the reason we could build these partnerships with application vendors was because of following the strategy in that book. So with Tailscale, 20 years later, I'm using the advice in that book and it is working out. Like a lot of the stuff that's working great at Tailscale is just because I read it in a book. And it, it, you know, it's almost embarrassing to say that, but I'm absolutely certain like this is a, this is a smart book by a smart person and everybody should read it if they're starting a tech company. I love it. Now for the people that are listening, Avery, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm on Twitter a lot. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Appenoir, which I imagine will show up in the description of this uh, podcast. Uh, you can also email me uh, if you're using Tailscale. You can feel free to email support at Tailscale. We, we answer all support requests, whether for paying customers or non-paying customers, which is uh, a thing that we place or we value highly being able to give everybody support uh, regardless of payment. Uh, and I've also got a blog, appenware.ca, where I write about technical stuff and business stuff. Amazing. Well, Habery, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.